bro. I'm over here counting this bread. I keep the faces down. It don't matter. <laughs> it don't matter. <laughs> it's just like sometimes you have to move to the money. Because you, you, money is it's like the money is like a woman, bro. Money will do what it has to do, but it don't want to work too hard to get it done. You feel me? So you gotta meet it halfway there. <laughs> like that's like the easiest way I can say it. You feel me? Speaking of which, this my CFO calling. That means you back, bro. Peace, what's going on? How much? That's it? I guess. <laughs> All right, sound like a plan. Well, let's get to it. Good evening. Great evening to everyone. Um, peace and love, Halito. Wanishi um, for tuning in. And tonight we have a special guest, Mr. Jacob, excuse me, Dr. Jacob S. Dorman, um, the author of the main book that we'll be speaking on tonight will be the princess and the prophet but he also has another book as it pertains to the africans of the diaspora here in the america as it pertains to islam as well so i would like to touch on some of those subjects but without further ado we have mr dorman how are you today sir good good peace welcome i mean thank you for having me and for that nice welcome um so would you like me to just describe the book for the first like five minutes or 10 minutes or what do you well, have? Um, or do you want to ask? This is because this is your project. Yep. And I would like for you to give us a little bit of background on yourself and then for you to go into the book and lay it out how you see fit. Because okay. like I would like for you to present in the manner in which you see best. Okay. All right. So um, let's see about me. I'm a professor of uh, U.S. history. My specialty is African-American history. Um, I, I did my undergrad. Uh, I'm, I'm from California. So I did my undergrad and grad in California. I got my Ph.D. from UCLA um, in, in history. Um, so I'm and that was, oh, 2004. So um, more than more than um. 15 years ago. So I'm a, a practicing historian. I'm part of a community of scholars. Um, I have been, you know, at this for some time, um, for about, at this point, about 20 years. Um, as for me, as to why I study uh, African-American history, everybody 
not everybody, but a lot of people ask me that. And, um, and that has to do a lot with, um, I, I just see it as central to, to, to U.S. history and even to my identity. Um, cause I went to, I went to Berkeley high school where I've got my, my diploma here. Um, and, uh, I've just been, you know, in going to school in public school in the East Bay, I was always, uh, just going to school in black communities and with, um, black kids. I and, did hear you mention, I didn't mean to cut you up, but I did hear you mention something previously. That way people have a little bit more context. You, um, you've mentioned how much hip hop affected you are in your upbringing. So could you yeah. speak that a little bit as well? Well, sure. I mean, it's hip hop, but actually, I mean, um, jazz, I think is equally or even a bigger influence on me. Um, um, all, all different forms of music. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, black music is just central to uh, American music um, and uh, is it definitely was just a part of the way that I was raised. I was raised playing music, and um, and then when hip hop started to happen, because I'm old enough that I like remember, you know, Run DMC, and I, I remember the Last Poets, and um, I remember this kind of like transition that started to bloom in like 1985 and and so forth. Um, it was just part of, you know part of like the, the culture of the school where I went to and of, of my, my classmates. Um, but I think I, I have appreciated hip hop so much because there's so much philosophy that's in, in, in worldview and political perspective inside of hip hop. And you can listen to somebody like Yasin Bey and, you know, he just drops like kernels of wisdom that are hard earned wisdom. And so if, if your ears are open to it, you can get a lot of senses of, of, of of direction, like being pointed in certain directions. And so, um, yeah, so I'm not, I mean, I can't claim like I, 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 I can't say I am hip hop or something like that. Um, it's I'm crazy. Not, That's the term you mentioned. Cause I actually have an interview with, um, KRS one that I right. released like right before his verses. Yeah. I'll make sure I say you, you, you're a hip hop fan. I'm gonna shoot it over wow. to you so you can check it out. Wow. I'm 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 honored. I'm honored to be on the same um, stream. Uh, just yeah, by Griffin, he's a pretty cool dude, and like you said, the philosophy aspect. So I understand yeah. um, just being so immersed in like with a lot of the the elder boom that artists how they affected a lot of our minds and you know like even culture. And I myself, based on your literature, I see that hip hop is a product of some of the things that occurred because of Islam here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, there's so many um, Islamic artists in hip hop. I don't have to go through the whole list, um, but there's a lot um, and it's had a major impact. And um, and so it's, you know, I think for me, that's one of the things that pointed me in the direction of writing about the Moors and writing about uh, the prophet noble Drew Ali is the sense that, um, you know, Islam has impacted American culture and, and, and American music and hip hop and, and political, political perspective, like beyond just the realm of the Moors, obviously uh, the Moors kind of were like the, the start of a lot of Islamic movements in, in this country, but it goes of course, beyond, beyond the Moors and it, and it inf 
it kind of filters into popular consciousness to the degree that I could be, you know, educated about Islam just by listening to hip hop, you know, like learning about what the Uma meant and, and represented, um, learning about, um, um, you know, just different things about political positioning and critique. And, and so when I was coming up in the nineties, um, this was like right after I was in college, right after the Rodney King uprisings. And there was a lot, much like today, there, there was a lot of sense that um, we had a major problem in this country with, with racism and not owning up and not facing um, the realities of, of American history. And in African-American history or black studies, I found just tremendously um, enlightening and um, just kind of, um, the, the, I, I guess I, I think about it like this, like if you're listening to music, again, this is a musical analogy, but if you listen to the bass line, you can hear everything. And if you just listen to the, the the melodies, the harmonies, the high notes, you um you miss a lot of what's going on in the music. And so I think um, if you want to understand U.S. history, you have to think about oppression, and you have to think about um, who's been oppressed, and you have to try to go into the, the perspective uh, of the oppressed. You can't just kind of float above and write about presidents and and uh, you know, these, the kind of like white elites, if you want to really understand um, um, this country's so, history or hemisphere's history. Is it safe to say that as it pertains to history of um, what we call today American history, mm -hmm. um, is it safe to say that you felt the need in order to fulfill, you know, like a gap? That's the reason why that you that you personally didn't find yourself. That's the reason why you went you research for in particular areas yeah i mean i think like a lot of people like i i've always wanted to make a contribution and do things that other people weren't doing and um i had the experience even in college of doing research at the schomburg library in harlem and making connections in the archives and for anyone who's ever done archival research you know, like when you when you make a connection um, that nobody's ever made before, or even if you, you're making a connection that other people have made, but when you make a discovery, um, you feel like you've made a contribution. And so I always gravitated towards subjects that a lot of people weren't writing about. You know, like I'm not writing about the civil rights movement. I'm not writing about Abraham Lincoln. I'm not writing about the Civil War, or World War II, or all of those topics. Um, that kind of like make it onto the history channel because I found what was most interesting to me I, I was um, these topics and these, these people who were, um, you know, much like today, much like, you know, among um, African-Americans who, who practice Islam or who practice different forms of religiosity, uh, Rastafari, there's always this very strong historical critique and political critique. And so when I actually, you know, encountered those people either in the flesh or in the archives, I found that that was really stimulating, uh, I guess, because I, I was basically sympathetic 
um, to a critique of um, of America, of American racism, and of um, hemispheric racism. Right, the 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 global history of um, African slavery, and, uh, which is just you know one of the most atrocious episodes in in world history. And so, I I found myself uh, gravitating towards telling the story of um, you know I was writing a, during a, about episodes during the Harlem Renaissance, but not writing about the Renaissance, writing about trying to write about ordinary people and how they were experiencing life. And so that's how I kind of uh, moved into my first project, which was about um, Israelites um, mm -hmm. or, or Jews, Hebrews. Can you mention the title of that book again? Yeah, um, yeah. That's, um, it's Chosen. That's this one, Chosen People. Here we go. Um, the Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. And um, this came out with Oxford University Press in 2013. Mm -hmm. And it's, it starts actually in um, Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, because that's where the Church of God and Saints of Christ starts. So these movements begin in the 1890s in the holiness movement. So I had to learn a lot about, you know, the history of kind of radical Christianity. Um, and these um, uh, a few different prophets in the 1890s started preaching that uh, that people of African descent were uh, descended directly from the ancient Israelites and should go back to practicing um, the the practices enumerated in the Hebrew Bible. So I, I kind of say that they reverse engineered Judaism because they had the Hebrew Bible. So they start practicing. Um, you know, they didn't just go to European Jews and say, hey, what is Judaism? They, they figured it out. They reverse engineered. Um, so that starts in the 1890s, but then it really has this heyday in um, the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s um, when you have the formation of synagogues uh, called the Commandment Keepers um, Synagogues uh, under Rabbi Matthews, um, Wentworth Arthur Matthews. And um, and Rabbi Ford, and so this, these were like the Garveyite, the kind of West Indian Garveyites in Harlem. So, um, what yeah. time frame does the majority of your studies go from? Because I heard you just um, referred mm -hmm. to the 1890s. Right. So, like, at how far back do the majority of your studies go to? You know, current times. Well, I think I mean. Most of them center on, well, both, uh, you know, there's only two, but they, they center on the um, 1920s. Um, but yeah, I do go back into, in the first book, I go into the, all the way back to like, say, 1800. And in the second book, it goes back to, starts at ancient times, really, because I do a whole history of magic um, what magic was according to the Greeks and Aristotle and then what magic was according to the like Renaissance and Christians and this whole that, um, idea. And I can go into that if, if you yes, like. Yes, please. And I would, especially because of the, um, the correlation between the Hindustan and because like I, like I said, I'm a part of both communities. I'm a part of the American Indian community and I am also, I'm a more by blood. So, and like I've been through temple and I've, I've had all these experiences. So I'm able to relate on both sides, but as it pertains to the information that you presented from the 1800s, a lot of that was new to us within the Indian community about the circus records. Cause 
for the love of us, a lot of us did not understand how some of these other nations who later became known as Native Americans got here because like we have records for a lot of travel man uh, manifestos and things. And we understand where people have been. My family calls the particular landmass where we come from Lenape Hokan. And that is pretty much New York, New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania. And that's what it's always been called as far as we know. So when we know what has been called, we know what's been here. And then for all of a sudden, it's just a whole group of another individuals came about. But it really wasn't mentioned throughout history, American history, how this happened. And you really uncovered that with the circus archives. You really did. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I think... You know, I was thinking about this, about the circus. I think some Moors got offended at the notion that their holy prophet could have started in the circus. And I think people, just, people don't understand what the circus meant in the 19th century. Like the circus was like Hollywood and the NBA wrapped up into one. Because yeah, those things, these were, were like, that was, was like, like the most famous you could be back then. Yeah, Everybody that, seen you. Yeah, that was it. And it was the best athletes in the world. So you got to think about it. It's like the NBA. It's like being in a circus tent was like being maybe not in a pro arena, but in like they see the 15,000 people. It's like a college stadium and they would play two or three nights or even one night and then and then go on. But they had, you know, they had giants like now we we watch we go we turn on the NBA to watch giants dunk basketball. Back then, mm. they had giants just like being giants. <laughs> or they, they had feats of strength. They had feats of uh, um, uh, acrobatic uh, uh, wonders and and equestrian um, things know, that the average man usually can't do, or they're not. No way, yeah, no, no and they, and like jaw dropping things. Like even even today, like if you saw, you know, circus is kind of dying. But even if you saw these things, it's it's amazing. It's just amazing what. Um, they could do so you have to think about it as like these are the best athletes in the world and the best entertainers in the world and the most prestigious thing like hollywood didn't exist like if you wanted so, to go to i'm going to let you know i'm going to let you know yeah. something that you may not know within the moorish community they are aware that noble Ju ali has circus ties it's actually mm -hmm. documented the issue came about when it was the identity crisis like I don't, I don't mind expressing it to you. Like the issue yeah. came about with the identity crisis. So as, as I review some of your other previous interviews with some of the other Moorish bodies and things, I, I was unbiasedly watching it, and I could see where the issues lie. It was them trying to make the connection on how the Bristler situation mm -hmm. would coincide with their profit, and also mm -hmm. like I could see some of the similarities. And on top of when you lay out the. Well, let, I want to get into that a little bit later after you get into the magic aspect, because yeah. I, I, I want to hear the breakdown for the magic for sure. Yeah. So the really interesting thing about um, the history of magic is that magic developed uh, in parallel with religion or the concept of magic and the concept of religion. Uh, if you go all the way back to the Greeks and Aristotle, they're they're saying basically like magic is bad religion religion is good religion and it also became um orientalist like so they're saying the bad religion comes from the persians and comes from the turks and comes from the east and we in the west being in in greece we're, we're practicing good religion 
And so even from the very beginning of the origins of this word magic, you have this sense of this, this dichotomous split between good and bad, West and East. And then that develops uh, with the advent of Christianity, uh, then magic gets identified as being specifically Muslim. So um, there's this long history, and we call this, you know, ideas that divide up the world into East and West is called Orientalist uh, ideas. And their Orientalism was developed, you know, by the West in part to denigrate the East and to develop this whole sense of um, um, superiority of Western superiority. So this is kind of like the, one of the origins of Eurocentric um, white supremacy, uh, supremacist thought. Um, but th what then what's really interesting. So then you can look at how, how magic develops, uh, in the Renaissance and it takes on Kabbalah and this kind of, uh, Jewish magic. It takes on these different aspects. It takes on Islamic magic. Um, but then in the 19th century, what starts to happen is at this point, uh, European imperialist powers are starting to conquer the world, or they, they've already been doing that at this point. So they're spreading these European em empires, and they describe the religion of everything that's not European as magic and bad. So whether you're talking about Malaysia or you're talking about um, Sierra Leone or West Africa, Europeans are saying, well, anything that, that non-whites are doing is magic and, and bad. But then what happens is that you have European magicians who start traveling to places like India and Arabia and seeing magicians working and, and fakirs, like lying down on beds of nails and walking on hot coals and doing all these you know, different kinds of tricks. And uh, they bring it back to Europe and start trying to reproduce it. And so one of... When you yeah. mentioned the when you mentioned the um, fakirs, you're you're re um, referring to the Hindustan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just for yeah. clarity for the audience, yes. Right, but they're from from what I've read, they were identified as being uh, a Muslim Hindu. You know, Hindu meant both Muslim and Hindu in this era, because you know India hadn't been partitioned, so you had Muslims throughout India at this time. Um, and so there were, there was this kind of Islamic flavor or, or association with Indian or Hindu magic. And then, and some of the most famous um, U.S. Music, uh, musicians, magicians uh, were practicing Hindu magic. And most famous is um, uh, Harry Houdini. So that basic escape magic of being bound up by, by ropes or Houdini did it with chains, right? That was a, a staple of Hindu magic. So there's this long tradition of Eastern or so-called Oriental um, magic. And, and one of the things that's so interesting about that is that it's like, it could never have happened without the history of European imper imperialism, but it also starts to turn that, I, uh, notion of white supremacy on its head because it's a way of of kind of questioning like if if this um, magician can can make you baffled maybe you're not so superior and so there's this kind of way of reckoning with um, the non-white world with Indians and, and Africans and Arabians and Chinese magicians of saying look actually uh, Europe uh, 
you like if you if you were a European watching this, maybe you don't really understand everything that there is to understand in the world. Maybe there's these kind of ancient um, mystery traditions and wisdom traditions um, that have a lot to teach you. So uh, it's very interesting, right, that uh, Walter Brister takes up Oriental magic um, because of his ideas about he's kind of basically anti-imperialist and anti-racist ideas. Um, and I, there's books and books and books written about magic. I, but maybe I should stop there. Um, no, no, well, I actually, I have a couple of them. I actually have a really large book. I have, um, I, I collect all types of literature from all different variations of people and nationality. So one of the largest magic books I carry is actually Aleister Crowley's magic book. Mm -hmm. And that one is about like this thick, yo. It's super mm -hmm. big, but it's just I'm interested to understand these different perceptions, and you know, like because I understand I don't know everything. How else am I supposed to learn without you know at least cracking a book open or at least gaining the experience? But right. um, it is I do. So is are there any key factors that you may have left out of the book that you may want to talk about? Because I know some like as somebody who's done a book before, sometimes you can't put everything in. So I know how it go. Well, I mean, this isn't so key, but I just discovered this week that W.B. Du Bois agreed with me about Chicago politics. Mm. But he he put it into um, in, into this novel. Uh, it's not a very good novel. It's called Dark Princess. And um, but in the middle. So it's. It's actually it's it's an interesting novel, but it's not like a well-written novel. But in the middle of that book, he's got this section called The Chicago Politician. And he lays out everything that I talked about in my book about Oscar de Priest and, and the corruption of the Thompson machine and the way you had these South Side politicians uh, who were both black and white, who were participating in that machine and the kind of system of patronage. So W.B. Du Bois was writing about that in this novel. If I if I had known that, um, I would have put that in. But, um, you know, I, I'm sure that there's going to be more to come out. I just had to, you know, people say, well, why, why didn't you do this or that? And, you know, ultimately, I just my approach is that it takes more than one book and other people should write their own books um, if, if they have a lot of uh, um, things to add and you know because of my own kind of personal contribution to history yeah, as you did. yeah and that's because that's that's what history is i'm trying to use my website to allow people to actually see the evidence for themselves the primary sources you know historians mm -hmm. talk a lot about primary versus secondary sources primary being um, evidence that was created in the time that you're writing about um, so things like census records and, you know, program, uh, all kinds of things. So I'm trying to allow people who are interested in this topic to go to my website, which is princessandprofit.com, um, to check out the evidence, you know, for themselves about, you know, Walter Brister, his wife, Eva Brister, and the origins of the Moore Science Temple. So... I'm, I, I know I heard them express it to you previously on one of the Moorish platforms. The issue is that because of the affinity or for the love for this individual who at this day and time during the early 1900s, he seen it was such a religious Christian base within the melanated community. He brought them these teachings 
from the Circle Seven, which he says is the Akashic Records condensed, and um, taught them the importance of nationality for a people who has been removed, just like understanding what it means to have nationality, not even saying that you have to be a Moorish American, just understanding the importance of nationality. So these people have an affinity because they feel as if this individual saved them. Mm-hmm. And because people have a certain biasness, when things come out that the temple has not openly expressed, they find a distaste for it. So like some of the some of the articles, they like to say that they're hearsay. But mm-hmm. you know, like how I know everything was not hearsay back then. In a lot of these articles, some of these things did happen. And also for any melanated man in the early 1900s to have any real monetary leverage without any disruption you have to have some political ties and that's what we found in chicago detroit and also new york and jersey Mm -hmm. yeah i I think that's true and i think um you know one of the incredible things about prophet noble drew lee and their and the moors is um there's you know, he played the game like he knew how to play the political game. Right. He knew how to um, ingratiate himself and he knew how to gain power and wield power. Uh, and real power. For like, a man who used to be in front of large stages of people, you know how to right. wield people in. Right. Like and yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that, too. Like it makes sense. I mean. I believe, okay, that this man was Walter Brister. Not everybody is convinced. You can check out the evidence for yourself. But if he was Walter Brister, it would make sense that, you know, he was the biggest black, he was the first black star on Broadway. The first. Well, I say say in the book, he was the first black child star, but I'm familiar with the the statues and stuff. But for clarity, I also heard you say it previously because of the adoption records was it that he is him or that he uh, potentially picked up his foster brother, excuse me, adopted brother's identity? Well, um, see, there, th- this is like, this goes into the question of, of the evidence. And I think, uh, I think it was him. I think it was Walter Brister who became Noble Drew Lee. And then I think Walter Brister was the brother of Thomas Drew who was adopted um, in the 1900 census. And I can show how um, Lucy and uh, his father split up in the in the 1890s. And then... Uh, do you Lucy, need, do you need yeah. to give you a free share? For sure. I want to see it. That- <laughs> mm-hmm. like, this is, like, this is why we're here because I want it from, like I said, from what I've seen from you, from the community that I am attached to on the other side, which is the Moorish community, I didn't feel like it was a very um, tasteful representation of how we are supposed to operate. So I wanted to, you know, extend mm-hmm. my platform to you so you can really right. lay out the information so it could be an understanding of right. all these. Because you did, what, 15 years of work? I know it was on and off, but 15 years yeah. collectively, that's, mm-hmm. that shit deserves an applause. Excuse my language, but it does. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Well, I mean, so all the the evidence, the primary sources are available on the website and I can walk people through it. But um, uh, there's a lot of different identifications um, that 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 um, help to identify Walter Brister as as the future noble Drew Lee. Um, And again, like, I don't think that there's anything that I wrote in the book that should make 
people change their opinion about the prophet. If if prophet saved you, um, well, there we go. All right. So um, there's nothing to make you think that you know him being uh, on Broadway as one of the most successful. Um, uh, and the first black star on Broadway, that doesn't mean that, you know, that I think only enhances the notion that he um, was extremely special. Um, so yeah, yeah, so this yeah, goes yeah. into his wife. Is it, is it primary sources one or primary sources two that you want me to go to? Uh, you could start with with one. Okay. So this is two. You see, I've been on here before. I already know. <laughs> right. So this is the life of Walter Brister. So the first um, first thing is a census that shows you um, when when he was one years old. So I'm kind of like building the story. Like this is what historians do. We kind of try to find uh, written records where we can. Um, and so this goes all the way back to 1880. If you scroll down there, um, Walter Brister is is one years old in this. Um, you have to go, where is it? Lucy Magdalena and then Walter. You see it's uh, on line 9, 10, 11, and 12. Walter, and it, it says Walter B for black, M for male, and then one for years old. Yep. So that's the beginning of Walter. Brister and his um, father's Henry Brister and his mother's Lucy and his, his big sister was Magdalena. She's yeah. actually um, buried in, she moved to Washington DC and then Kansas city later on. But if you scroll down, you can see more. Um, so anyone who's interested can kind of see the evidence, the trail of evidence that I followed um, here. You have, uh, the show poster for the show that Walter was in, and you can see him. He's the smallest one there holding a cornet. Um, four from the right. Yeah, that's him. Um, and what's amazing, too, is that if you if you uh, zoom in on that lithograph, um, you can actually see uh, this look in his eyes that he also has in, in 1900 some years later. Um, I think he's, a, he's, it's pretty incredible, right? That this work of art would preserve that, that look in his eyes um, from when he was 14 years old. So this band, I mean, the incredible thing about this band is that it was the most notable um, uh, innovation of the show in old Kentucky. Also that Walter was the star of the show. Um, they made a statue in his honor and because this band was so successful, there were all kinds of shows imitating this show. So there was like in old Mississippi, in old Georgia, in old, you know, you name it. Uh, there were, I think, more than 20 um, variations. Of, and they all had to have a band. So this created a whole market for young black boys who could play um, brass instruments. Uh, and I think it's actually, he's one of, Walter Brister specifically is like one of the forerunners of Louis Armstrong because Louis Armstrong picks up the horn in like 1909. So um, 15, 16 years after this happened. Um, if you keep that scrolling is, down. That's amazing on the music side. Yeah, isn't it? Uh, so this is a statue that they made of Walter. 
So, I mean, I think it's incredible that this man was, even at 14, he was the biggest, he was the biggest black star in Broadway history. Um, and if you believe that he was, you know, divinely inspired, it only helps that belief to think that he was such a star at such a young age. So that's the a bronze um, statue that they made. I was really excited about this because I found a newspaper saying that they had created this statue. And then I found an auction site where somebody was actually selling it. So I, I got those pictures of it, uh, uh, though they couldn't go in the book. If you keep on going down, you can see comes next. All right. So then um, I'm actually tracing him in um, city directories. Those are one of the great sources. And you can see his father, J.H., that's John Henry Brister, music teacher. His name, by the way, was John Walter. It wasn't actually Walter. Um, so he was a he was a junior. Uh, J.H. Brister. And then um, he's in Cincinnati. Then they moved to Covington. Then they moved back to Cincinnati. So you can kind of see how I'm building this up. Um, uh, scroll down, please. Uh, his sister Maggie there. And then Walter, that's the first time when he appears on his own in 1897. And then um, keeps on going. There's Walter again. So we have a sense of him. Um, so the question is, what happened um, to Lucy, John Henry's wife? And this is when. Uh, OK, so down here it says Grace, the widow of John Henry. So Lucy is, is not in the picture by the time John Henry dies. I think this is 1903 or so. Um, he has a different widow. So then the question is, then what happens to Lucy? Um, all right. Click on the next page, please. Um, okay. Let's see. Primary sources. To, okay. Scroll down. So this is just giving you some background about what's going on here. Um, all right. This is the, oh, this is really interesting. This is the first time the Sotankis appear um, at, uh, a theater in Cincinnati. And what's amazing is it says it, the, that the act astonishes everyone and cannot be explained. So theosophists claim, except in accordance with the principles of their belief. Theosophy was a religion, an Eastern religion. It was started by Europeans, but it was um, basically a version of Indian religion. So from the very first, the Sotankis were presenting their work as religious. Um, so that's one really interesting thing to note is that it's not like Walter Brister wasn't interested in religion. He was interested in religion from the very beginning when he started performing as the Sotankis. Um, okay, scroll down, please. I hope people are enjoying this. I don't even know if we have people watching, but... Yeah, there's yeah. people watching and they're in the comments, they're commenting, and I know a few of them, they do have some questions that they would like can. to ask you towards the yeah. end. All right, so let's keep keep scrolling here. All right, so this is the story of his wife, Eva. She, um, she was really interesting. She was from Cincinnati as well, the Cincinnati area. Um, she gets married, her name is Eva Alexander, first then she gets married to a performer named um, Hammond he I think he dies um, 
not long after they're married and then she remarries Brister. So um, this is the first marriage in 1898, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then you see this is Walter Brister with the Pawnee Bill Wild West show in 1899 for the first time. Now that right there, like because the the Piney Bill situation, like I said, for the American Indians mm -hmm. and that because of because of your your goal was you were focusing on you know the princess and the prophet story you know drew um their prophet drew ali and stuff mm -hmm. so that is what your main focus was on but that circus aspect i'm telling you that is i wouldn't mind if you wrote a book about it because like <laughs> it it needs to happen that information has mm -hmm. to like i know you have access to the archives and things but because that particular action that mm -hmm. affected the the circus interaction as it pertains to them bringing um hindu sign and also mm -hmm. other asians over that mm -hmm. affected this country and a, a scope that a lot of people are not aware of but um please yeah. continue yeah yeah it's it's really true um so arabs start coming into the circus well representations of arabs start in the 1830s you have like a this italian guy who starts presenting himself as a Hindu uh, and as an Arab. But um, they start coming about after the Civil War. There's this whole history of, um, and I have this actually in, in the photo gallery. Um, there's these Moroccans, Moors, who start coming to this country as acrobats and as equestrians. So there's a guy named Hassan Ben Ali, and they're presenting... Um, Islam. I mean, he presents the uh, uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca is is what they they reenact and they do these incredible feats of horsemanship um, and just uh, incredible feats of uh, strength and athleticism. They become uh, acrobats in the circus. Just start to be called the Arabs. Like they didn't even call them acrobats. They just called them the Arabs. And sometimes you have like a white dude who joins the the Arabs and takes the name Ali. And, and this is one of the things about Armas Sotanki here, Walter Brister. Whoa. Like, yeah. I need you to repeat that last part okay. because I'm, I've never heard that part before, but yeah. I want to make sure that I heard it well and the audience heard it well about the Ali part. Okay. So <laughs> there were a troop of probably Moroccans. I mean, there usually were Moroccans. Sometimes they were Egyptian but usually Moroccans. So there's this group of, uh, of, of Arabs, all with the last name Ali, and they're in the same um, Wild West show with Arma Sotenki. And they all have different names. I think if you, if you look at um, the primary source uh, document two, I think I have a picture of them, if not there, then in, in the photo gallery. And um, there was a white guy named Charles Lewis who started performing with them. So they called him Charles Lewis Ali, meaning like, you know, if you join the troupe, if you they, they would give you the honorific Ali. So, I, you know, I think that's very telling for someone who I think became Noble Drew Ali. That he knew people named Ali 
um, and he knew he was introduced to um, Islam in uh, the Wild West shows and the circus. And another thing about the Indians, he was also in that same show with a group of Sioux Indians, Lakota Sioux Indians, who were um, uh, ghost dancers. And the ghost dance, some of you might know, starts in the 1890s in Nevada, outside of Reno, and it spread throughout Indian country throughout. Yeah, like, that makes sense because yeah. you're you're talking more on the other side, you know, Lakota, North Dakota, South Dakota. Mm -hmm. That's where they originally come from. So yeah, right. that, that's right. That's in that's new information as well because I didn't read that. Yeah, well, it's in it's in the book. Um, he uh, they they did the ghost dance and what the ghost dance was supposed to do. It was this circular dance that went for days. What was it was supposed to do was rip up all of the white man's uh, railroads and cattle and telegraph lines and just eject all Europeans from North America. And I think that there's a really interesting parallel between that teaching and between some of Noble Drew Lee's teachings about the kind of coming day when Europeans would, would be forced to leave um, North America. So I, I think that this um, there's also an interesting kind of cosmopolitanism and internationalism in Noble Drew Lee's thought. And I think that also that's part of um, his the circus and wild west show legacy that these were very cosmopolitan spaces where you could learn about Islam. You could learn about native American religion. You could learn Spanish. You know, there were people from um, Bolivia, Argentina, Mexico, uh, India. Uh, when we look back Russia, at the circus, Russia, like, it's always an intermixing of different mm -hmm. people. Um, like everybody has their own realm from the acrobats to the bearded men to the strong men. And these are usually people from different nationalities as yeah. well. Right. So just think about what it's like backstage at the circus when like how many languages would have been spoken, how many different religions would have been practiced, how, how much different kind of, how kind of world opening that, that would be. Um, and so I don't think, I don't see the entertainment portion of his life as being a kind of uh, exception to his later teachings. I think that they help you understand how he understood how to command a, a crowd, you know, how he developed this incredible charisma. He probably was born with this charisma, but he develops it, you know, as a performer. Um, he learns about the world. He le learns about Islam. Um, and I, I think that it becomes a really important um, phase for him. Then the other thing is about Chicago because he goes by 1903 or so he's or 05. Um, he's back in Chicago playing trumpet mm -hmm. and he's playing with this generation of musicians who go on to invent jazz music. So jazz itself hasn't quite happened. Um, but he's like of the generation that, that really invents it. And he's part of these sort of communities of musicians and also magicians um, that that are of that era. Like now, this is why I asked about the time frame aspect, yeah. because during this time frame, it wasn't all the way cool. That's what that's why I kind of wanted to have an understanding of how far back you reached, because if we're talking, because I heard you refer to the aspect of um, African-Americans, 
and um, also um, alluding to variations of slavery. But we have found inconsistencies with those stories within our communities. And we understand that it hasn't been the exact way that it has been projected in text, because this also projects a mindset amongst the people that this is what you were. Because if I teach you that you were a slave instead of an American Indian, I put you in a whole completely different mental construct. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this is what we come to discover. Mm-hmm. The, the Indian connections, I think, are really, really interesting. We talked about a little bit about this before. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's undeniably true that there there's a lot of Indian ancestry among people who today are, are considered um, to be black. And I think it's, you know, it totally makes sense to claim indigeneity, to, to claim uh, Indian heritage for people who know, who have that, those traditions. Um, and uh, we talked about this. There's, there was a genetic study in this book called Freakonomics that tried to show that black people didn't have Indian ancestry of for for the most part, but you and I know the history of the the Delaware uh, Indians. It's just uh, Delaware Indians were sometimes discriminated against by other Indians because they had so so many um, black members. Um, so this is just, and it also it all it's also true for a number of people who look white but who had Indian and black ancestry. Like there's a guy. Actually, the publisher, I mentioned him in the book. His name is William Larone DeLawrence. So he published the books that the Circle 7 Quran are are based on. Um, he was a publisher. I need you to repeat his name one more time. I need his you to repeat his name one more time. William Larone, L-A-U-R-O-N, DeLawrence, D-E, capital L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E, kind of Thank French you. spellings. Um, he's in the book. He was a fascinating individual. He um, he looked white. He called himself um, Indian. Uh, what's the what's the medicine show? The Choctaw. He claimed to be Choctaw. He so he looks Italian. He claims to be Choctaw, and the police said that he was a quote unquote Negro. Okay. And and so what year was this? So this is like, well, he's arrested in 1911. Okay, for having an orgy. Whoa, was, he was a magician. Wrong, getting interesting. <laughs> I know, and it was an interracial orgy. This actually, this isn't in the book. I didn't, I didn't have time for this in the book. But he gets arrested um, because he's having interracial orgies. Um, and so that, you know, that they just couldn't abide that. So they arrest him. And then he kind of decides to focus more on publishing as opposed to, um, you know, running his own um, secret society. Uh, he's a spiritualist. Uh, they, there's there's an Indian in his secret chambers that they're sort of worshiping this wooden uh, cigar oh, store. Okay. Now, just for clarity, for clarity, because we are there are Hindustan people within this story when you refer to an indian can you make the distinction between american indian or hindustan indian please just yeah all right all right so there's a there's american indian he claims to be in choctaw 
uh, the police say that he's a Negro, but his magic is he's practicing Hindu magic. So, you know, subcontinent India magic. That's how he starts is practicing so-called uh, Hindu magic. And he gets into the, the Moore story because he publishes. Um, he's one of several people who published the, the texts, one of the two texts that are the major texts that are found within uh, the Circle 7 uh, Quran. Um, but he's also using, you know, there's, there's something really subversive too. Like he makes fun of white people in his magic. Uh, and then he creates this kind of uh, the, the order of the white rose that had white members and then and, and black members. And then the order of the black rose that had only black members that was like the higher order. Um, so you have individuals like this that are using magic in really interesting and, and anti-racist and subversive ways. Um, anyway, um, I forget how we got onto him and the Indians, but the, the, yeah, the Indian history is, is deep and profound in this country. And I don't think a few genetic studies disprove it. And, and I've seen evidence in, in the historical record you know, I got interested in this because Leafy Anderson um, founds the, she doesn't found, but she becomes the, the most influential black spiritual church leader in New Orleans. She starts in Chicago in the months right after uh, uh, William Lerone DeLawrence's, you know, order of the, the Black Rose gets broken up. Um, what year was that? That's, I think, 1911. Okay. She's, she herself is from Wisconsin. And the, as you might know, Delaware Indians went to Wisconsin. Um, so there were, yeah, there, and then in, in New Orleans, uh, she introduces the worship of the spirit Blackhawk, you know, the famous Indian uh, rebel leader. He's like Che Guevara of, of 19th century Indian history. Um, so she introduces Blackhawk, Blackhawk becomes the primary spirit guide uh, in New Orleans. So this is part of the same realm that's also creating a lot of Islamic movements, like a number of, of spiritualists in New York uh, who identified as Muslim. And so, and, and then there was a, a Muslim uh, um, a figure in Chicago uh, who I've written about, uh, who comes to um, Father Hurley, who's a spiritualist in Detroit leader mm -hmm. of the largest the largest spiritualist association in america out of detroit and his name was elias abraham i, I believe and he has a meeting of the minds with father hurley and father hurley tells all of his followers that they need to start learning arabic and he gives them a primer on arabic words and he says uh, wherever you see a muslim you should greet him as a brother because a true spiritualist is a a true a Muslim, a true Muslim is a true spiritualist, is what he says. So That's in the true. 20s, you know, there's a lot of overlap um, between spiritualists, uh, Muslims, um, uh, and, and 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 magicians. You know, like they're they're all in the same or, or very similar realms. Um, so I've I've done a lot of work about um, uh, spiritual churches as well. well at a future point in time, 
if I could, I would love to reach out to you and dig into some of the archives that you have pertaining to American Indians and potentially. Yeah, yeah I would love in the future. I would love to do that. I feel like it's a necessary thing. And yeah. I'm thankful for this situation even occurring right now for me to have the opportunity to even ask. Because yeah, yeah. Like, that is I feel like um everything happens for a reason for sure. It's divine. And um mm -hmm. and um I'm reviewing a lot of the comments and the people are receiving the information so very well and I'm thankful for that as well. I actually had concerns. I was like I didn't want no negative energy. <laughs> but as far as like everything is going good. And um once again like I'm I'm thankful and I'm learning a lot because you just expressed the plethora of things to me that I haven't even heard about some of my own people. Mm -hmm. Well, there's um, archives are great. And if you're interested in this information, you know, there's circus archives in Connecticut, um, in Florida, in um, Illinois, in Wisconsin, New York. Um, those are some of the, the biggest ones. Um, if you or any of your listeners are interested, you can, um, and they're all listed in, in my book. I mean, this is one, one thing about academic history is that the whole point of all these footnotes and all the bibliography is that you can check my work and you can go to the archives yourself. Like, so they're all in the back of the book. And with and, that being said, yeah. On from a legal standpoint, with the the manner in which you and also with you having a PhD, you being a doctor, like in your your work has to be scrutinized before it gets published. With that being said, you having um, people who do genealogy look into the material, you were pulling archive records. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but your your book had to be checked out before it could be published and given to the public. Yeah, yeah. And, with that being said, unless somebody can provide evidence that the information you have put forth is incorrect, it stands as true. And that's pretty much from A to Z, unless you have said this is a theory within the text. Well, I, I don't I wouldn't say it stands as true. It just stands as part of the conversation, like scholarship is part of the conversation. And I think the best thing that. about this is. Uh, the best possible outcome would be if there's some like 14 or 15 or 16 or 18 or 20 year old, listen to me, who's like, I'm going to prove Dorman wrong and sets out to do it. And then, you know, gets a degree in history and then gets a PhD. Like, I would love that if um, 15 years from now, someone comes up to me and says, I'm a professor because I'm, um, you know, I, I start out to disprove you. Like, I think that would be a beautiful thing. Um, it's a conversation like I'm surrounded by books. There's um, so many books about about the Moors that I both learn from and that, uh, you know, my book doesn't supplant like it doesn't try to be uh, and uh, kind of account from the, the disciples, the eyewitnesses um, that were there. It's using um, different kinds of records to tell a, a different story. Um, but everything you know you can check like there everything has a footnote you can check the footnote um you can write me if you've got questions you can always email me with with your questions i'm happy to um discuss them um but to me it became really a, a compelling case um that i was just kind of getting a clue here a clue there <clears throat> that finally led me to the idea that that Walter Brewster really was Noble Drew Lee, and that also that Noble Drew Lee in the part of the book 
<coughs> excuse me, the part of the book that doesn't get talked about a lot is the whole history of Chicago politics. Yes. And, um, you know, there's stuff in my book that I haven't found anybody has written about since 1930, which was like the, the degree to which Oscar de Priest and uh, other um, machine politicians were complicit in in the machine and that they were taking bribes from Samuel Insull. Nobody even knows the name Samuel Insull. And he was the um, he was the most powerful businessman in the 1920s. He was more powerful than Henry Ford. And wow. he was personally bribing voters through Sam through Oscar de Priest um, to vote the way he wanted vote. Um, to elect the the people that would be complicit with his agenda for, to raise streetcar prices and electricity prices because he controlled streetcars, electricity. <coughs> Excuse me, I need to get some water. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Woo. Family. Man, oh, man, oh, man. Y'all welcome. Y'all welcome. Thank God I'm recording it. <laughs> Oh man, um, if you do have any questions, because like we're coming up on an hour with, um, with Mr. Dorman, yo, please drop your questions so I can go back and so we can, you know, <laughs> go through these. <laughs> because um, I'm, I'm just, I'm in awe at some of the information, like even just being able to hear it come from his mouth about the book. Because even when we previously spoke, I didn't ask him some of these questions. So he's back. Yeah, I'm back. So, um, yeah, so nobody has wanted to tell the story, I think, of, of politics on the South Side because there's nobody comes out looking very good. You know, Os Oscar de Priest. A lot of families today will look bad. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's not that long ago. Um, and, you know, de Priest goes on to become the first um black congressman from from the north um, in 1928 but he's basically i mean everyone was corrupt in, in this era so to say oscar de priest was corrupt it's like yeah he, he was everyone was but he ran he ran corruption on the south side you know he he made deals with al capone um and so um, I think that also explains the violence that engulfs the Moore Science Temple at the end in 1928, 1929, <clears throat> uh, with first the, the, the murder of Claude Green. That's exactly, and, and yeah, then, there was money involved in politics. And then, yeah, there's money in politics. And, and the most convincing explanation that I've heard is that Claude Green was the candidate of the moneyed, powerful interests that were trying to take over the, the Moors or at least, you know, get a better deal, a better cut um, of, than, than what they were getting. Uh, Mr. Dorman, I know, um, I know you're, on a, you're on the other side. I don't want to keep you too late. We're coming up on an hour. So if you, um, you could go through any more of the book information that you felt the need to, but I do have um, one of my counterparts that I do business with, one of my business partners, he would like to ask you some questions, and he is very predominant in the American Indian community, and he's a, he's an author himself. Okay. 
So I just wanted to clear everything. Cool. Right. But um, do you have any more information that you would like to share with us as it pertains to the book? Um. Well, yeah, I mean, just as far as this, the whole, the intrigue of what was happening in Chicago politics, I think it plays directly into both the demise of Claude Green and then also of the prophet. And I, I think that there's a lot of evidence that the machine did a, did away with the prophet Noble Drew Lee in 1929, that it wasn't a natural death. And I can't, I can't really prove that. Oh, we, we, that's been stated within the Moorish community that that wasn't necessarily a, a natural situation because especially when you knowing about him being, um, a, a Fokker and him being able to deal in certain healing medicines, the manner in which they said he passed was something that he was able to heal himself from. So that is skepticism on top of, they said he was put on ice in a jail cell and then he was given pneumonia. So you know how it can be within communities without the evidence it it allows for a lot of assumptions and that's what we right. have today yeah and i think you have you know there were only a few people at his at his deathbed and two of them were the Payne brothers and aaron Payne was a city attorney meaning he was you know he was part of the the thompson uh, chicago political machine his brother worked for provident hospital and the year after, in 1930, the year after the prophet passes, Samuel Insull, who's you know the the utilities czar who's running corruption and bribing uh, in in Chicago for the Thompson machine, Samuel Insull personally creates uh, you know raises two million dollars for Provident Hospital. So it sure seems like um, wow, you said yeah. two million in 1930. Yeah, well, 1929, 1930. Yeah. Ooh. Just, so less, less than money. a year, less than a year after the prophet dies, and when Doctor Payne is at the at the bedside and actually signs the uh, uh, the death certificate, so it's just suggestive, right, that there was some kind of quid pro quo, but but there's not enough evidence to say exactly what happened. Hey, this it was if when you start seeing the monetary records you understand that particular movement was doing better than any other movement from our from any melanated people during that time 